When investing passively, I believe the operator is the number one factor of success, and a close second is the asset type. As a passive investor, you should understand if the asset you're investing in is heading into headwinds or tailwinds. In today's episode, Paul Moore talks about an asset class that has seen a 500% increase in demand since 2021 and how you can capitalize on it. This is the Passive Real Estate Strategies Podcast, where our goal is to educate you about the ways to create passive wealth through real estate methods that do not require your time. I'm your host, Justin Moy with President's Club Investors. Let's get right to the show. Hey, investors, welcome to another episode of Passive Real Estate Strategies. Today, I am sitting down with Paul Moore. Now, Paul has completed over a hundred commercial and residential investments and exits. He's been on HGTV, contributed to Fox Business, Real Estate Guys Radio. You might recognize him also as a huge contributor on Bigger Pockets. He's done a ton of stuff with them. He's also a best-selling author of the book Storing Up Profits, capitalizing on America's obsession with stuff. So, Paul, man, we're excited to have you here. Hey, it's great to be here, Justin. Thank you. So tell us about your journey. You know, we talked a little bit before we record. Um, you guys love storage, of course. You've written an entire book on on self storage. Has it always been self storage? Is that what you've done in the past, or do you have different stuff you're working on now? You know, tell us about that. Yeah. Um, so I started off in residential, did different forms of residential for about eleven years. Jumped into multifamily, uh, ground up multifamily in North Dakota for the oil boom in 2011. And uh, after doing a couple of those deals and exiting those successfully, I wanted to be a multifamily syndicator. Mm -hmm. And we did that. Well, I should say we tried to do that for a number of years. But I mean, for those of you who can see me, I'm in my 50s and I know I don't look a day over. No, I'm yeah. just kidding. But anyway, um, seriously, um, we I was just becoming really, really risk averse. And I saw a lot of people overpaying. Mm -hmm. and taking risks in multifamily that I just didn't want to take. Plus, our acquisition team, frankly, did not do a good job. We were not building the relationships we should have. And I think it was all a blessing in the end because we finally decided, we're like, hey, look at all those opportunities over there in self-storage, mobile mm -hmm. home parks, et cetera. And we also saw that our investors wanted diversification. So it made total sense. What didn't make sense is for us to be an expert in all those arenas. Mm -hmm. I couldn't run, you know, six different asset types and do yeah. be an expert at all those. I mean, even Buffett, Warren Buffett, who I study a lot, wouldn't ever do that. And yeah. so we realized, hey, let's step back and create a fund and give our investors diversification and access to hopefully really good operators in all these different arenas. And that's what we've done. Yeah. And so it sounds like you went kind of residential and then you went mobile home parks was a little bit after it kind of fits in that residential space or, or did you go to self storage? Right I after? actually did. So I, I did, we did residential for about 11 years and then I went to the multifamily um, in, in North Dakota. Mm -hmm. I actually did four mobile homes along the way, Justin, okay. and it was like four, three of the four were the worst investments I've ever made. Really interesting. And so yeah. but you, you stuck it out and you did a fourth. What's well, a mobile home? So yeah. So mobile homes, investing in mobile homes is, I mean, I think a horrible idea for so many reasons. I don't think we have time here to get into it all, but the, you know, tenants for mobile homes are not often 
sharing the ownership. You know, if it's just a tenant, Mm -hmm. sometimes they'll just go in and trash the place and then move out and like leave it a mess. Let's put it this way. Two of the three bad ones I had, I literally had a decent mobile home. In fact, one was almost new at the beginning Mm -hmm. and had to haul them off to a dump, literally haul them off. Uh, after these tenants trash these. So I would never invest in mobile homes. Mobile home parks, I absolutely love because you're generally, you're renting dirt and infrastructure to these tenants who have their own mobile home or at least buy them. And they become co-owners, co-managers with you, if you will. And they tend to do a much, much better job, especially if you're managing it well. Yeah. And I've heard of that a lot too, is is within, I mean, just like with many forms of real estate investing, you have so many niches, right? You have niches within that niche, and then you have different assets, they have different niches there. Um, and a lot of people do have, have said that, hey, I would love to own the land, own the dirt, and then you rent out the plots. Or if you do have the actual physical structure, there needs to be some type of ownership. Maybe it's a lease option or, or a lease purchase, something like that, um, to mitigate that. So I've heard that feedback uh, quite a bit. And so right. when it comes to self-storage, I mean, I feel like you having a, such a successful book on that, you know, you really understand the ins and outs there. Has that been something that you've been keeping your eye on for a very long time? Or I know a lot of people started talking about self-storage a little bit more over the past few years, um, but you sounds like you were in that a little bit, a little bit before then. Yeah. Um, self-storage. So I got a phone call uh, after we were like, three months into a multifamily deal that we were owning and operating and I was hating it on so many levels. I mean, I had a podcast called how to lose money, right? Okay. Anyway, but seriously, we were hating this multifamily deal and I got a call from a multifamily investor who like, he's, he sounded like he wanted to maybe invest with us, but it turned out he was trying to sell me on investing in his new self-storage thing. Mm -hmm. And I was like rolling my eyes on the other end of the line. Like, what is this? Who is this? You know, why is he trying to sell me? And then a few things he said caught my attention. And I followed up with like a two and a half hour call on a Saturday morning, that (laughs) Saturday to learn more. And I got totally excited. And really, it comes down to this. There's a lot of things that it comes down to, but there are 53,000 or more self-storage facilities in the US. That's the same as McDonald's, Starbucks, and Subway combined. And about half of them are owned and operated by mom and pops that have one asset. And they typically don't have the desire, knowledge, or resources to upgrade these uh, you know, facilities and to maximize income and therefore increase investor value. And so acquiring from mom and pops is a huge win in mobile home parks, self-storage and RV parks, which we absolutely love. Okay. And so that's really the big opportunity there. And I think, you know, one thing that I've heard from a lot of people who have pivoted from a multifamily into things like self-storage or into RV parks, like you said, or into store short-term rentals, whatever, is, hey, we are seeing that growing gap in, in just that realm. Hey, these are these mom and pops still operating these when before, very common for mom and pop multifamily operators of all different sizes. And now a lot of those have kind of gotten eaten up by by guys just like you and me who are now who are buying from those mom and pops. And now we're running them really well. We're running them pretty efficiently. There's not a ton of operational efficiencies to keep solving. And so now it's like, okay, where is that next opportunity at? And so you found that in self-storage. Um, and then you actually mentioned RV parks as well. Like that's really exciting. I don't think very many people think about that when it comes to investing. Um, you know, what what made you so interested in, in RV parks? 
Well, I mean, there are a lot. There, there are a handful of great RV park operators like Sam Zell, God rest his soul, and some of these other big ones. But the vast majority of RV parks of the however many thousand are out in the U.S. There's varying numbers out there. Mm-hmm. Um, are very fragmented and a lot of mom and pop owners. Uh, yeah, RV ownership has risen 62% since 2001 before the pandemic. And then in the pandemic, it just skyrocketed. I mean, with five times the number of RV sales and RV park campers um, in the, I should say RV park campers specifically in year one of the pandemic in 2020. And, uh, you know, 26% of those RV campers were new to it in 2020 during the pandemic. And the RV park usage now has even grown more. I mean, we've got the remote working revolution where people realize, hey, I don't have to be chained to an office and a desk. I can work out of an RV. Mm-hmm. And my kids can be over here at the water park and putt putt golf and having fun, uh, you know, at this campsite. And I can be working on my Zoom or phone or whatever. You've also got the fact that the Airbnb, the, the sharing model, which you and I both love, has hit the RV world as well. You've got several big websites that you can rent an RV and they can even take it to your campsite if you're not secure about driving it. And they can set it up for you and you can just show up. So huge increase in RV usage from those and where the supply is coming down on is the supply and demand issue is really hitting the RV parks. Yeah, And so we think it's a great asset type. We spent mm-hmm. years wanting to invest in it, but we didn't have the right operator. We finally found the right operator and we're loving investing yeah. with them. Wow. And so do you feel like, you know, anytime I see these really, really big booms, and I think some people who listen as well, that might actually turn them off a little bit, right? Turn them away because they're saying, okay, well, is this sustainable? Is it going to keep growing at this pace? Is it going to crash? Like, you know, come right back down after a couple of years, you know, are people going to realize, ah, why did I buy this during COVID? I don't need it. You know, we'll just get rid of it. So is that a concern for you at all? Or are there other data or statistics that you like that say, oh no, that's not happening because you know, of this. If you want to replace your income with passive income, then head to the show notes and download our free Retire Within 10 bundle. And this includes tons of resources that will help you strategize replacing your income with passive income. This is by far the most valuable download I've seen in our industry. And it's something we are super proud of. Head to the show notes and download that now. Yeah, there, I mean, there is some data showing that, you know, like there's about 10 million RV households that own an RV in the U.S. right now, but about eight or 10 million more say they want to buy one. And so we think the demand is still there. My neighbor on one side has one of those huge expensive RVs and yeah. he said it's a two-year wait to get that model. I mean, to order and get that model in. Um, but I mean, honestly, we, there are four types of RV parks. I mean, there may be more, but there's four that we know of. And those, um, would include, uh, first of all, overnight parks that would be just heavy on convenience, Mm -hmm. light on amenities. A second type would be extended state parks, you know, where it's at a lake or a mountain resort and, you know, somebody's building decks right on their RV. So they plan to stay permanently and they do. In fact, those places have like 
years of waiting lists from the ones I've heard of at least. Uh, a third type is workforce RV, which is, you know, like we saw in the North Dakota oil boom, RV parks just popped up for the oil boom. Mm-hmm. And then my favorite is destination RV parks. And we think that even if RV park usage levels off or drops, the destination parks, they're so rare and they're so expensive. They take a lot of capital, a lot of manpower. We think they're going to do really well. Um, Some of these have a year waiting list to get in. Uh, And these are parks that either are at a destination, let's say Gatlinburg, Tennessee, or maybe Branson, Missouri, for example, or, you know, near a state uh, national park like Yellowstone. The other type of RV park, destination park, actually have a whole bunch of amenities. And like that would include pools, water parks, fishing ponds, um, swimming ponds, mini golf, dog parks, hay rides, face painting, gem mining. So these can be massive operations. Just massive. It takes a hundred plus people. It's a theme park. (laughs) You almost have a theme park there. (laughs) It's a small theme park. And so in that sense, I don't want to say they're recession recession proof. They're certainly not, but they're recession resistant mm-hmm. in the sense that people who can't afford to go to Disney World this year might be able to afford to do this. Yeah. And so how do you so I I, I like to simplify things and and kind of compare it to to residential or multifamily a lot of times because a lot of times that's what people know. So people are looking at a, a multifamily deal, right? That the play is typically, hey, I'm gonna buy this property, maybe it's a little bit outdated. I'm going to fix it up. You can tell the paint's old, the countertops are old, the cabinets are old. We're going to put in you know, granite counters, paint the cabinets, do this. That'll increase the value per rent here. And that's how we'll increase the value of the overall property. We sell it off. When it comes to RV parks, is that the typical play? Is there value to be added or is it more of a purchase turnkey and you hold it and the cash return is, is really strong enough in that sense to pursue that strategy? Like, What's the strategy that a lot of people like yeah. when it comes to the RV parks? It could be either. Um, Mm -hmm. We, with these destination parks, I mean, it's kind of hard to believe, Justin, but I mean, you, one of the uh, ones we invested in had about a three and a half million dollar acquisition price. Mm -hmm. But after adding all these amenities and expanding by buying the nearby land around it, I mean, they have like 18, 19 million dollars in it. So, like five times the purchase price. And so, I mean, honestly, the cash flow on that the first two years is about zero mm-hmm. because a lot of it's going back into, you yeah. know, just pumping up the whole program and getting it built out. But after that, the projected cash flow is quite strong. Uh, of course, there's no guarantee of those results, but a good operator with great amenities in a great location can expect very strong cash flow. And um, so whether they refinance, and hold on or whether they sell you know either one can work yeah okay and so it's it's a mixture of the strategies which which i really like and as a lot of the value add play is it mostly in adding uh, amenities or what type of amenities are you seeing that that tenants are really liking right now yeah and so you know a lot of the you know like a 2.5 million dollar water park that's a big you know that's a great one another one is Wibbits. have you heard of Wibbits? i have not no I, I say that to to actually to have a little fun because nobody's heard of them hardly. But 
um, Wivitz is a floating obstacle course. And so one of the parks we invested in had about a half a million dollar lake and they had a two or $300,000 expense to add Wivitz, which is this floating obstacle course. Kids spend like $17 an hour to run out, you know, they jump around and they push each other off and they yeah. dive and, you know, all this stuff. And it's, it's really cool. And, um, it's uh, at seventeen dollars an hour rental. It can provide up to a thousand dollars an hour in value wow. add for that park, and so it's pretty strong potential yeah. value add. Man, I love it. I think that those are you know phenomenal, and I love just thinking outside the box too. What what can we invest in? What's out there? Um, most people are very comfortable in residential because everybody knows it, right? Everybody's lived in an apartment or lived in a, gone on a short-term rental or something. But when it comes to RV parks, kind of pushing that boundary of, Hey, you know, what's my taste for investing in more alternative things? How can I really push this and look for greater yield? At the end of the day, I think most people, you know, if they have options between A and B, they, they're guaranteed things and B is a higher return. Okay. I almost don't care what it is. B is where my money is going. So if you could just get educated on these types of assets and get a little bit further out from what a lot of people are doing, you know, there's a, there's a lot of great opportunity there. Um, so Paul, I mean, this has been, you know, really, really awesome to hear about you guys and, and the, the RV parks. I don't think we've had somebody on the show really dive in exactly like you did on what to look for, what types of value add plays. Um, for anybody who's looking to invest in RV parks, you know, what are some things that they should look at? What are either some red flags or green flags and some of the deals that they might see? Yeah. So one choice, of course, would be to buy an RV park. My son's got like 1,500 acres he's acquired here in Southwest Virginia. Um, and I think that honestly, would I would only recommend anybody do that if they're giving their whole heart, soul, mind, everything to it. Nobody should try to do that passively, uh, as you can imagine. And I imagine you and I would agree on that. But um uh, if they're going to invest passively, I mean, I would bribe, buy Brian Burke's book, The Hands-Off Investor, mm -hmm. and go through that. It's it's painful. It's about 350 pages of details you want to find out from a syndicator or operator and about a deal. And go through that and come up with a long checklist. I'd fly there no matter how much of a hassle that is. If you're giving somebody fifty dollars or $100,000 of your hard-earned capital, it's worth a flight. Get yeah. to know them, ask hard questions, see how much skin they got in the game, do a criminal and background check, dive into the financials. I mean, it, it will pay off it, by finding the right jockey and allowing them to find the right horse and train that horse. It'll pay off in spades to find the right one. Yeah, I love it. So, you know, we, we always recommend that as well. You have to do a lot of your due diligence. Yes, the investments are passive, um, but your work is really done up front on that side. Then once you get a, a sponsor that you're really comfortable with and you know them, you know, it becomes less and less. But for that first deal, yeah, there's usually this big workup of due diligence. And then you're kind of focusing on the deals thereafter until you really build a ton of trust with an operator. Um, I mean, Paul, this has been a, a really, really great conversation with you. For anybody who's interested in learning more, you know, how can they get a hold of you if that's the best? thing to do um, and how, how, who yeah. should you touch? Yeah. Um, I've got a free RV park special report for investors who are looking to invest passively. You can get that at Wellings Capital. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S. That's my company. Wellingscapital.com slash resources. 
And by going there, you can get a special report on RV park investing as well as others on mobile home parks, self-storage, and more. Um, if you want to get hold of me, you can just go to that same website and uh, I'm available there. But that's that's what I'd recommend. Yeah, perfect. So listeners, we're going to put those resources in the show notes. While you're there, of course, if you haven't already, make sure you download our free ebook, The Definitive Guide to Passive Real Estate Strategies. Paul, thanks so much for coming on. Hey, Justin, it was an honor.